Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. We have assembled a list of hundreds of film scores that are worth talking about, and we're assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us Ennio Morricone's score to the 1966 quintessential spaghetti western, Il Buono, Il Brutto, Il Cattivo, known to you as The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly was written by Age and Scarpelli, Luciano Vincenzoni, and Sergio Leone. It was produced by Alberto Grimaldi and directed by Sergio Leone. Andy, tell us about The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Well, it, of course, is Sergio Leone's iconic vision of a brutal and beautiful Old West where very tough dudes shoot it out and nobody is trustworthy. It stars Clint Eastwood as ostensibly the good, Lee Van Cleef as a desperado who is putatively the bad, and Eli Wallach as Tuco, the ugly. Set against the backdrop of the Civil War, the movie follows those three guys who fall in and out of uneasy alliances as they race one another toward buried treasure. Good enough? Good enough. Ah. <laughs> That's a good one, Andy. Thank you. I've been trying to make that noise. It's hard to make quite the way it sounds in the thing. Did that? I can't tell what I sound like. Did that sound more or less like it? Oh, let's see. You sounded like this. Ah. No, I feel like I'm not doing it as well as you did. It was a little high. Yeah, you're right. There's more of a... Ah. This should just be the whole episode. I wish there were a record of how he directed them to do that. I wish you could see what the instruction to those guys was, but uh, we don't have it. Huh. Yeah, well, he certainly seems to have had to come up with some interesting instructions because uh, it's an odd collection of instruments doing kind of weird things here. Yeah, but we always say that. Let's uh, let's just lay out the groundwork here first because I want to hear from you. Okay. You have mentioned this since our third episode. It's true. We had a Morricone score and you were like, you know what I really love is the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> and I knew the theme because you can't help but know it. It's very iconic and inescapable in culture, but I hadn't seen this movie. I'd never listened to the whole score before. Shame to say this on a podcast about how much I like film scores, but it's just the way it is. These things happen. These things happen. Sometimes you have gaps. Everybody has gaps. In fact, I'll say I still have a pretty gaping gap for Westerns in general. I don't really know Westerns the way that a person who likes movies kind of ought to. They're like one of the fundamental genres. They're the first genre. They're the most American basic genre. And I don't know that many of them. Don't always know how to relate to them. Hmm. So I want to hear from you what this movie and score has meant to you. Yeah, I hadn't seen this movie properly from start to finish. I now realize in quite some time. And in that time, I definitely have listened to the soundtrack album a lot. So I was very familiar with the music. I was very familiar with all of the musical moves. Is that an album you've had since you were a kid? Or did Close you... enough. Close enough. Yeah, yeah, it's an album I've had and learned very well. Mm. And I did that on the memory of feeling like this was a cool special movie that I now realize I saw when I was pretty young. 
And watching it now put me in mind of the way that you described being able to slip into a sort of child dream-like appreciation of an old-time movie, like when we were talking about Gone with the Wind. Remember you were saying that, yeah, you know, you, you just put this kind of old movie on in front of me and I just slip back into this old way of watching it where it doesn't really have to make sense and I'm not really tracking it as I would with my adult mind, but it just sure. feels like a movie is going by and that's comforting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, that's how I think my relationship to this movie winds up being. And I think that if I bring my adult mind to tracking this story... <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually paying attention to the movie. I don't know that it holds up quite as well as, as I would have been prepared to say when I was comparing things uh, in the score to the mission against it. Well, it's interesting to hear you saying that because I... Yeah, how did you like this movie? Well, ultimately, I came to feel that this movie was only that. When you talk about watching in a childlike, dream logic way, yeah. I thought this movie so much is that. This is a dream. It's like some kind of deep subconscious fantasy about the West. Yeah, that's true. There's not a lot else going on on the surface to distract from that. <laughs> Except for the Civil War. <laughs> the Civil War is there to distract from that. All right, but, you know, is it really the Civil War? It seems kind of like some Italian guy who heard that there was a civil war in America, and this <laughs> is sort of a fantasy of that. No, that's true. It definitely, it stays far, far away from the actual things at stake in the civil war. In the introduction, we said something like, set against the backdrop of the civil war. That yeah. pretty much encapsulates everything there is to understand. <laughs> it is set against the backdrop of the war, and there are that's soldiers, right. and there are battles, and such. Cannons and the like. A fusillades of cannons. There are. There's absolutely a fusillade. There's like competing fusillades. My point, though, is uh, I could have done with a little less Civil War business. I felt like that was uh, an interloper in the iconic dream logic Western character study that was what I remember from my childhood. Yeah, well... I did have a little difficulty tuning to the frequency of the dream that the movie was. Hmm. I know there are people for whom this movie in particular, and then the world of the spaghetti westerns in general, is central to their love of cinema and love of movie music and love of life. I mean, it's just like such a basic flavor for some people, and I'm not one of those people. Yeah, but it's a flavor. Oh, yeah. Whatever this movie doesn't really have in terms of making sense with a story and cohesive uh, blah, 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 it definitely has a flavor, and it definitely has a lot of cinematic mastery in terms of the, the photography and the... Oh, yeah, it's very painterly. The composition is beautiful, yeah. It actually reminded me at times of actual surrealist painting huh. and you'll see people saying that it looks like de Chirico, which is absolutely true with the colonnades and like a train in the distance mm. but i also thought of like salvador dali paintings where something weird some dream thing is happening in a desert a desert expanding in all directions i thought yeah this landscape is being treated as some kind of weird surreal dreamscape in which events play out and they're very <laughs> very significant 
that was my understanding of the imagery and of the appeal and of the music ultimately. And I don't know if it's the only understanding, but it's the one that I was able to come to. All right. So I think we should talk about this phenomenon more explicitly that you mentioned, the Italian Western film. Yes, yes. What are known as spaghetti Westerns. So Sergio Leone is the director who is often credited with inventing the genre, but I don't think he was the actual first Italian director to make these kinds of movies. I think he was merely the one whose movies really hit it big. I think he's the one who brought the most craft and distinction to it, but I think there were many low-budget ones before and after. In fact, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is the third in what is often thought of as a trilogy of spaghetti Western movies made by Sergio Leone. And you, Andy, suggested that we should watch all three of these movies in order, in preparation to talk about this score. To be clear, I suggested that because I was so acutely aware of this gap. I didn't say it because I knew what we were going to see. I thought it was a good idea. I think I told you that I had seen those prior two movies, which are called Fistful of Dollars and then For a Few Dollars More. Their real names are in Italian. I was fascinated with what you were going to wind up thinking of this whole set of movies coming to them in that order. I thought they got progressively better and more interesting as they went along. Yeah, they definitely did. It's really remarkable, I think, to what degree The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is just a better made movie, just more assurance about every aspect of it, I think. Yeah, well, it has a much higher budget. It's an actual co-production with some American money, and you see the budget. I mean, you see a whole army's worth of costumed sure. guys. You see They blow up a bridge. Yeah. That's expensive. But also just the confidence of the pacing and the camera composition. It feels more put together. Yeah, it digs even deeper into the idiosyncrasies and the peculiar vision of the Leone style. Like From the very first shot, which I love. I mean, it was one of my favorite shots in the movie where you see the desert landscape and then a guy swings his head into frame way, way closer than a face ought to be. (laughs) Just filling the frame with the crags and scars on his face. What a face. Leone has this real talent for just spotting faces that he wants to put on the screen. And yeah, that's like the first thing that (laughs) you see in the movie is... Is extreme. Extreme face, and then two more extreme faces, and they don't talk, they don't do anything, they walk very slowly in this western desert, and you just see face, walk, face, face. Whatever it is, whatever is happening, it's not even clear whether you're supposed to understand what's happening, but it's just stylish. Yeah. In the prior two movies, there's sometimes a sense that he's building up to a moment when he's going to dare to be Uh extreme, you know, stylistically extreme. And in this one, he's ready to go there pretty much at any moment, all the time. Yeah. And sure enough, Clint Eastwood is, in all three movies, playing kind of the same character, but not really. Right. He's playing the same costume. (laughs) Well, you know, people attempted to say that The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is actually a prequel to those other two because uh, he only gets the iconic costume that he wears in the first two movies. He only gets that poncho towards the end of this last movie. I just don't think that there's any intention for there to be a continuity. It's just a type. It's not a real character. It's just a type. Yeah, like everything in these movies. Right. I mean, it's like having a recurring dream. Like, oh, there's always this kind of stoic guy in a hat and he's staring at me in my dreams. And <laughs> it's your father. I don't know who it is, but it's someone from your subconscious and that's who Clint Eastwood is playing in all these movies. Right. Lee Van Cleef, on the other hand, he's a good guy in the second movie for a few dollars more and he's this sneering villain in this one. All right, but let's talk about good guys and bad guys. Let's sure. talk about the title of this movie, <laughs> which suggests that there are going to be three different starkly defined 
moral types in this movie. Right. Uh, there aren't really. There's no. just a bunch of bandits. Yeah. The one that we're told is the good, Clint Eastwood. He's not so good. The first thing he does is kill a bunch of guys. Bam, 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 bam. Right. And then the third thing he does is abandon his partner in the desert to die. Right. For no reason, right? Yeah, no. He definitely <laughs> doesn't seem all that good. I guess I'll grant that Eli Wallach looks ugly. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> he doesn't look like a movie star the right. way that Clint Eastwood does, but he looks normal. He looks I'm fine. Kidding. He's certainly found uglier people to put in the movie (laughs) that is for sure so what i kept thinking from watching these three movies in a row in which yeah clint eastwood plays a squinty gunman in all of them but he's not necessarily the same squinty gunman and then there's these other thugs and bandits and western 'er ne'er-do-wells and none of them really are real people and i kept thinking that well this is the italian idea of this is that they thought well westerns are you know big business uh everybody loves these movies We can make movies like this. We can bring our Italian sensibilities and make things that are grittier and less bound up by Hollywood moralizing. I think these filmmakers felt like Hollywood Westerns had gotten bloated and preachy, which is sort of what we were saying about The Magnificent Seven back when. Certainly what we said about how the West was won. That was a bloat fest. Right, exactly. So they wanted to strip it down and, you know, make the uh, types, the characters less clearly defined in terms of, you know, who was the good guy and the bad guy, who was the white hat and the black hat they thought that could be dispensed with and so instead what they wound up doing is kind of making western commedia dell'arte uh-huh you know these stock characters that uh, you don't need to explain who they are sure it's punch and judy and it's the guy who shoots at the guy and then there's the guy who gets shot at it's kind of all you need to know about them and all you get told about them yeah I mean, certainly that's right. And I like that connection to the traditional clowns. And that is exactly what kind of a thing Clint Eastwood is doing by putting on the same poncho over and over. Right. You know, in this movie, they call him Blondie. Well, Tuco calls him Blondie. This trilogy is sometimes referred to as the Man With No Name trilogy, or that Clint Eastwood character is called the Man With No Name. And he gets called different names in the three different movies. But I always felt like, yeah, that's just whatever that guy wants to call him in this instance. Nobody's saying that's actually his name. I see it kind of as the movie is like a kid playing with army men and (laughs) it's the same army man and maybe one day you call him one thing and one day you call him another thing. It's the same doll. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's the ethos behind the movie. It feels to me. I read a bunch of stuff about the spaghetti westerns and a lot of people want to say, oh, you know, Leone is, uh, these are his critique of American Westerns. He had a bone to pick. He had a point to make about American Westerns. That just doesn't feel true to me. What feels true is an anecdote that one of these producers, someone talking on a documentary said, Leone told me that all of these scenes were fantasies of his from when he was a kid, that he would dream about the West and he would picture scenes like this. And I thought that is exactly what I feel like I'm seeing here is an American genre setting the sky, the ground, the rickety buildings, the men staring at each other, and then the fantasies that a guy growing up in uh, 30s and 40s Rome, you know, fascist Italy Mm. had about that stuff. I don't think there's a conscious critique driving this stuff. I think it's very intuitive and they're just uh, what happens when one culture gets sent some other culture's movies. They're like, here's what I see. Here's what that sounds like to me. And it gets filtered through a different sensibility. Yeah, 
that's like speaking the language of Western with an Italian accent. Yeah. So what do you think about this spaghetti Western? It's very fun to say, but is it not offensive? It's kind of a tasteless way to refer to Italian culture as spaghetti culture. I mean, I think spaghetti tastes great. So I think spaghetti tastes great, too. But you wouldn't call an Italian a spaghetti person, right? <laughs> I really enjoy it when I get to go to a museum and see some spaghetti art. Yeah. Have you ever visited <laughs> Spaghetti Land? I have. Sure. <laughs> We went to a spaghetti opera. Yes. Apparently, Sergio Leone never understood why people were calling them spaghetti westerns. I don't think he was specifically offended, but he just (laughs) didn't know what it had to do with spaghetti. And I believe that Ennio Morricone, whose whole career, when let's start talking about it, he has been trying to limit how much he's associated with these because obviously they're fundamental to his reputation and he wants to own that, but also not be totally defined by it. And he apparently is very particular interviewers, people who are writing about him should not use the term spaghetti western and that seems natural to me kind of shows some kind of american provincialism to be like oh sure Sure. i've heard of italy spaghetti i've heard of that (laughs) morricone is a cavatappi man so this has been a lot of talk about just the movie on its own terms but i think actually it sets the stage well for talking about the music because the effect of the movie and the effect of the music are so deeply interlinked Right? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think the effect of the movie is the effect of the music. But let's start with your observation that the three different characters, you know, one is good, one is bad, and one is ugly, they don't really seem to be all that different. Seems like Morricone kind of had a bit of insight about that because he does not give them different themes. They all share the same theme. They just have different instruments play their little statements of that same theme. Yeah. At least at the beginning. So what we're talking about is the famous thing in this movie, the famous onomatopoeic icon of music, one of the great onomatopoeic icons of film music history. Absolutely. Up there with Jaws and Psycho, I would say. Totally. Totally. Is this wavering fourth trilling between these two notes? And when we're first introduced to these three characters, the screen freezes on them and the words, the ugly, the bad, the good, are written across the screen in red writing. We hear that little figure on different instruments. For Tuco, the ugly, he gets that human yell that we were trying to do at the beginning. For Lee Van Cleef, the bad he gets this uh, low flute kind of sound. What kind of flute is it exactly, Andy? Uh, It's like a large ocarina. They call it a potato flute sometimes, right? It's like a gourd-shaped ceramic instrument. And this is a particularly large Italian one that I think it's called an argilofono, which is a term that if you look it up, you will only find hits for the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I don't think you can even find a picture of it, but it's basically like a bass ocarina. Yeah. And then Clint Eastwood... The good, he gets it on what exactly? On on some sort of higher flute. I think it's a recorder. Yeah, it's a different specialized flute that, you know, is in this higher register. So those are the three characters of music. You're right, they're not very strictly linked to each of the three different guys, but they're mostly linked to them. You know, we mostly hear the correct instrument playing that little button whenever one of them is on the screen or another. (laughs) 
that thing which gets used all through the movie sometimes it's used as you say as a button as a little punctuation mark sure will say something or shoot something <laughs> and it's there to put an exclamation point on it to say yeah hell yeah when you have to shoot shoot don't talk In my notes, I said that sometimes it's used like uh, sunglasses emoji. It's, <laughs> it's just like, oh, yeah, he said that. He did that. And sometimes it's used fully musically, and, you know, we get this whole theme made out of it. So the first statement of the melody, we hear the on, indeed, that high flute, the good one. And it's interspersed with the answering phrase. The second half of the sentence, the predicate maybe, <laughs> the bow, 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 which is such a great resolving half of a very simple and effective sentence. When we were watching this, I thought, I don't know if I relate to this movie as directly as I should. I'm not sure I'm the type for this movie. But <laughs> this thing at the beginning, this theme that has gone on to worldwide fame is genius. And I am willing to, yeah. to praise this thing to the skies. And that's part of what is so genius about it, that it is a melody. And as you say, it's a phrase and then an answering phrase. But by separating them into two different instruments, right. two different voices, it's simultaneously two different things shouting at each other from across the desert or two different elements of the story and a continuous tune. You hear it both ways at once. I feel like just, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. What a work of genius. It encapsulates so much Absolutely. about what this movie is trying to be. Because da da it's the sound of some wild thing, right? It's the sound of the wilderness and of the animal forces in this world, right? In fact, I've heard it speculated that Morricone was inspired towards that sound by, indeed, that very first shot of the movie that you mentioned, where the guy's head swoops up into the frame way, way close to the camera. You hear a coyote yell distant in the background. That sounds kind of a little bit like that same figure. Yeah, the very first diegetic sound in the movie is yeah. this coyote call. Yeah, and it's kind of a coyote call that, like, if you were going to pay close attention and really force it to be a musical phrase, you might transcribe it as, you know, what he does. So uh, totally plausible to me that that's sort of the germ of the idea that Morricone took. I mean, I've known my whole life. I didn't associate the word coyote with it until just now when I looked <laughs> it up and found out that's the official explanation for what it is. But I always knew it was an animal. Uh -huh. Or I always knew that if it wasn't an actual animal, it was the animal spirits in these men. Sure. Or the landscape or something. I knew that it had the same function as a crow on a soundtrack to indicate that things are grim and that you're in a cemetery or whatever. It's such a cliche in movies in the background. I knew that it was the same kind of forest. It signifies isolation, the oppressive force of nature. Mm. You know, you just whistle that and you can picture the desert because it's so close to what we do with sound effects with real sounds yeah it feels raw and naturalistic which he makes the most of by assigning it to this wild man voice right 
all of the instruments that play it, you know, they have a little bend to them. They're dirtying up the notes. Right. And then it trails. Yeah. The last note kind of falls off. It kind of wanders down into a between-the-notes kind of rough-and-tumbleness. Which suggests an echoing, right? Which kind of suggests that you're in such a large landscape. You're in Monument Valley or something. Right. And after the actual sound, you hear it kind of distorted as it echoes around and it drops down. Yeah, you're hearing the decay. That first trill leaves you in this kind of rough and decaying position. It's kind of a spot of tension, and then the answering phrase kind of snaps it back into key. You know, like, where am I? Oh, boom, boom, boom. It grounds you again. Right. And it's a very satisfying period on a sentence. The boom, boom, boom. That's the guy, right? That's the gunslinger. At least in my huh. imaginarium. That's the landscape. That's the vultures out to get this guy. That's the harsh realities that he has to put up with. And then, that is the lone badass. toughness of that yeah. electric guitar i feel like it's musically so close to the shot that leona goes back to over and over of in the extreme foreground a hand near a holster right and then in the distance the horizon maybe the guy that's coming to get him horse whatever all on the horizon he actually put it in the music somehow i definitely grant you that the baum 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 are the badass notes i, I guess i was picturing that the first part of the phrase is what's meant to represent the three different guys because that's the part that gets changed around to the three different instruments although to be fair it mixes and matches he mixes and matches them let's go through and hear how he mixes and matches them in the opening titles so we first hear the melody with the high flute instrument playing the trilling turn the harsh screeching nature call and that's answered by something going wah 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 you can actually hear a wah in there it's like a voice saying wah I think it's a human and a harmonica at the same time, right? There you go. Yeah, yeah. And he loves that kind of composite sound. So they have a chorus. Then it switches over to that low flute. The ocarina. The ocarina that gets associated with Lee Van Cleef. It gets answered by a human whistle. So that's the pairing the second time around. And then, yeah, this electric guitar gets introduced for the bridge part of the tune. The bom, 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 bom. And it's this awesome Fender Stratocaster, which is such an inspired thing to put into this sonic landscape, this classically American instrument. Yeah, surf guitar. Surf guitar. It's a surf guitar, like with the reverb turned way up in the Fender amp. This is the part where he also really introduces something else that he loves to do, which is voices pronouncing syllables. They're meaningless syllables, but they're saying something. They're saying, like, go, 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 take go. Yeah, go, 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 take go was my guess, too. Although I've seen some people online saying they might be saying go, 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 manco, because that was his name in the previous movie. Nah. <laughs> to that I say, nah. It seems unlikely. Then it comes back to the main theme, and now we hear the third instrument, the third of the trio, the yell, has the melody. This is also paired now with the wah answering phrase. And we're hearing some of the go-go-go-take-o voices on top of it at the same time. 
That previous section, da, 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 you called that the bridge. I think of that as the B, because okay. I think of the bridge as being the section no, that's right. coming up that's a kind of premonition of the war and trumpet stuff where you hear these... Da, 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 yeah, da, which da, is da. so cool. Yeah, that is such an awesome spot in the main titles where these, like, bugle calls... It sounds like they're uh, trying to one-up each other, stepping on each other's feet and cramming themselves all into a phone booth here. Well, I think it's the old thing I've talked about before where you suggest battle by having two slightly inconsistent musical things coming at each other. Sure, and that gets resolved by us hearing the three instruments for the three different guys on the main motif all in a row, as though to say all of that action adds up to these three guys. Yeah, the main title is... microcosm of whatever sense the movie is going to make it is all there so he's setting up that he's going to mix and match all these different things and then sure enough there's different combinations all through the movie you hear the low flute for the bad guy for Lee Van Cleef and it gets punctuated by the Fender Stratocaster going when uh, when Clint Eastwood can you hear my cat sure can I don't know what to do about that. It works with the content we're talking about. Animal sounds in the background and so forth. (laughs) (laughs) All right. It suggests that you're in a wild landscape, man against nature. Sure. Surrounded by feral animals. Uh, She's hardly feral. That's why she's whining so much. So the whole movie long, Clint Eastwood and Eli Wallach's characters are going in and out of alliance with each other. And at one point in the middle of the movie, after having been separated, they get back together and team up again. So now that Clint Eastwood has shifted his allegiance back to Tuco, we hear his high flute instrument now has the answering phrase, has the baum, baum, baum notes, which is the first time that that instrument has been on that half of the phrase. I think it's not until the very end of the movie, the last twist of betrayal between the two of them, that we hear the high flute instrument for Clint Eastwood, and it's answered by the Fender Stratocaster on the Bound Bound Bounds. that combination had been saved until then maybe because that's when Clint Eastwood finally takes on this sort of bad guy mantle that was originally Lee Van Cleef's territory in the beginning of the movie I don't know you can psychoanalyze these different combinations in different ways probably but I think it's just interesting and fun the way he sets up these toys for himself and figures out different ways to put them together I think that's definitely right. I'm a little skeptical about a specific plot reading of the instrumentation only because of what we've been saying, that the plot is just kind of a circular playing around with these characters. Yeah. I mean, is the end when Clint Eastwood really becomes bad, that actually turns out to be, you know, he's not leaving him to die, which he did do earlier. And yeah, that's true. I noted that, you know, this theme, sometimes it means, hey, they teamed up. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Here they are riding off together, they're a team. And yeah. sometimes it means... Yeah, he's a lone wolf. He's on his own again, as it should be. Because the events and the interrelationships and the specific plot turns are sort of interchangeable as long as they keep... uh, They're interchangeable is, I think, ultimately the point that Morricone is making by, in fact, interchanging them. 
But absolutely, it's one of the most, yeah, you use the word genius. It's one of the most captivating and effective, complete musical sentences in all of cinema. It's just inescapable. And really, the strongest memory that I have about this movie from when I first watched it as a kid is that I'm fairly confident that after watching this movie was the first time that I ever went to the piano after watching a movie and tried to figure out how the music to it went. And I picked out those notes and I was interested in, oh, how do I make those notes? Yeah. That was the really powerful thing to me is I've heard those notes. Boy, those notes really did something for me. I want to play those notes. I want to know how they go. I figure out how they go. For my own kind of musicianship, I think that's really where my connection to this lies it just this is the first time i wanted to figure something out i hear that it's nice to hear about i relate to that not with this movie although i do remember not having seen the movie just having heard the little figure that it had a hook into my brain too as a kid and i completely relate to the experience of wanting to pick out and find what the notes were when it was a thing that didn't sound like notes you know if i heard mozart i would think i know how that's going to be on the piano somehow i know that the piano can make those sounds but these notes it's like right on the edge of a musical effect leaning into i guess i'm describing a pictorial effect or a sense of space kind Kind of effect and the effect is so strong that yeah it'd be like how is that notes what notes are those it does a kind of complete illustrating that you might associate with radio music that's supposed to stand alone which i think is the precursor to a bunch of these sounds there was sort of a subgenre of pop music around this time in the early 60s of, I don't know if novelty is the word, but kind of gimmicked up Western songs, sort of descending from... Uh, the Ballad of High Noon? Well, from Ghost Riders in the Sky, I was going to say, which we said was a precursor to Ballad of High Noon. Uh-huh. But yes, uh, High Noon, which has those clip-clop heartbeat sounds, is sort of in this lineage of songs where you'd hear the whip cracking on the radio or you'd hear the anvil strike or uh, here's a recording of Ghost Riders in the Sky which had a long career, was remade many, many times and had this kind of element of Western fantasy, you know. It's already stepping a little outside of the traditional American Western in that it's about Ghost Riders in the Sky. (laughs) It's got some surrealism baked into it. And so here's an arrangement I think this is from 1961. It's from just before the first of these Marconi Westerns by an American group, uh, the Ramrods. And they use the echoey electric guitar. And they've got all of these animal noises and shouting weird soundscape stuff in there and the reason you'd put that in a pop song is because any scene painting you want to do has to be in the sound so yeah some special musical effects to get that across and Ennio Morricone had been before his enormous career as a film composer he was doing pop arrangements I think the genesis of all of these scores is that when he got hired to do Fistful of Dollars, Leone said, I heard your last Western, which was called uh, Gunfight at Red Sands. Which has some panache to it, but it sounds a little more traditional Western sounds and American heroism. Leone said, that doesn't suit me. That's not the sound I'm looking for. And Morricone said, well, what about this? And this is an arrangement that Morricone did in 1962 of a Woody Guthrie song, Pastures of Plenty. Hmm. 
Well, I've wandered all over your green-growing land, and wherever your crops are, I'll lend you my hand. It has the crack kind of a sound, uh-huh. and it's got that ding in it, some kind of a bell or a pickaxe or something picturesque. And I'm gone with the wind. Then it's got these guys chanting in the background. And this is all scene painting for the radio. And Leone said, yes, that's the kind of movie I want to make. So then for Fistful of Dollars, they used this exact track. They just took the vocal out and put a whistle on instead. And this sort of started the whole spaghetti western sound. But what I think I've been building up to saying, what I think is so great about this is that it has a kind of redundancy to it. This is music uh-huh. that could have been the whole movie. It's got a whole movie built into all of this kind of extra unusual stuff. And then Leone puts it right up there with extremely strong imagery. There's a double stylization going on. Right. There's a western in your ears and there's a western in your eyes. And because they're kind of of pursuing somewhat parallel paths toward the genre it really makes the genre the myth as we're always always saying on this show it makes the myth be what it's all about Another thing that I think is funny about that phenomenon, the fact that Morricone likes to go to found sounds. Right. Non-musical sounds in a musical context. Right. Is that he got turned on to this in the highest, most art, culture, avant-garde way. He went when he was a young man to Darmstadt, which was this place in Germany that every year would have these courses and lectures. And it was kind of the crucible, the source for a lot of the abstract musical avant-garde movements of the 20th century. And he saw a lecture there by John Cage Ah. about how anything, any sound could be music. Sure. Well, he's the guy for that concept. That's right. That was John Cage's big concept that, you know, we have to expand our ears. We have to expand our definitions so that we can bring in all of this other sound that could fall under the umbrella of music and be thought of musically. And apparently Marconi and his friends thought this was funny (laughs) and made some parody stuff to make fun of it. And in making these parody pieces, he got really excited. He was like, this is really cool. And then they actually went on to form a serious ensemble, Il Grupo, and record this stuff. And he started putting it in everything. So then he uh, he wound up making the 433 to Yuma. <laughs> you can have it. You can have it. And so that's fascinating to me, too, because Morricone is one of these great crossover figures. He went to conservatory. He was going to be an intellectual classical musician. And then he was doing popular music work to make money. And then he ended up being most known for film scoring. But he has all these different languages and the ways they intermingle are wonderful are Mm non-standard they're particular to him and uh yeah i think that's my cue to announce that we're about to do our sponsor break oh is it okay break away it is take a listen to this golly what is that andy would you believe that this is by the self-same composer Ennio Morricone, whose music we've been talking about. I would believe it. You would believe it, but it might not be your first guess, because listen to this. It's uh, esoteric, weird music. This is his three studies for flute, clarinet, and bassoon. Mm-hmm. 
which you can, if you'd like to try to understand it more deeply, view every unusual interval, you figure out what he's doing with these pitches by looking at it in Encoda, the subscription app for streaming sheet music. That's right. Encoda is our sponsor, and Encoda offers you a subscription which gives you access to an enormous range of sheet music that you can practice, play, and perform, call up on any of your favorite devices, and really get to experience the music in the way that the composer was experiencing it. Yeah, these are the real editions from the finest music publishers, and it's a wonderful way to explore byways of music that might be a little too far out of your path to invest in by traditional means. But when you are a subscriber, you can spend time with pieces like this that yeah. I'm sure I would never have seen <laughs> in any other way and would not have been able to count. Yeah, if you, Andy, had told me, hey, check out this wacky Morricone piece, I would have been really interested to do so, but I would not have wanted to shell out money to see it <laughs> <laughs> or wait for the hard copy to show up in the mail or whatever. Yeah, like you say, having ready access to stuff because you're a subscriber allows you to strike such a valuable relationship to music where you can genuinely follow your curiosity or for that matter, genuinely find the music that you need to practice or perform or learn about for whatever reason. Hey, John, listen to this. This is Fortississimo. Golly. Four Fs in 4-4 four, four time. Oh, but this is just piano in 3-4 time, the next phrase. The only way I can know that is by <laughs> looking at the score. So go to your app store and download the Encoda app. That's N-K-O-D-A. Check out their free trial, which gives you access to their entire library, and see what you can see in the music. Yeah, enjoy. So you were talking about how Morricone likes to use these found objects, non-musical sounds, and he puts these outside things in his music, which certainly doesn't this score, although he's not exactly putting the things in there. There's a layer of abstraction to it because it's not a whip crack in this movie. It's a more interesting percussion instrument, or it's not really the sound of a gunshot. The gunshot sound that very prominently, I think memorably, is in the middle of the great cue for the final standoff between the three guys. The trio is the name of the cue. That sound that definitely sounds like, you know, gunfire sound. Yeah, ticka 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 tick. I wasn't able to find out exactly what it is, but I have a pretty strong guess. I think that that is either like plucking or tapping on directly on the springs in the reverb box of the Fender amp. That's my guess. I'm pretty sure it's not actually a gunshot sound, but I think it's definitely meant to be evocative of it. Yeah, it's a sound. It's not notes, and it's not the rhythm of the tune. It's a sound from this world. Yeah, and then he also, you know, throws tubular bells in there, and those aren't exactly funeral bells or gun-cocking noises. The church bells in one of these sad little towns. Right, church bells. Yeah, but it's adjacent to that, and he's painting with these textures. Yeah, you're right, that are much closer to the real objects than musical textures, but they're not exact recordings of the real things. He's still achieving them impressionistically. They're still stylized. Yeah. Yeah, my point is just in a movie, I think you would often avoid making the sound of the thing in music because it's in a way too material. It would become redundant somehow or it would miss the point. 
point, but there's a special effect in these movies. Uh, I saw someone pointing out that Leone's camera style, as we were mentioning, is extreme close-ups and long shots. Right. And it kind of skips over the standard mid-shot. I mean, of course, they're in the movie, but the heart of the movie is in cutting from these extreme details to the vastness of the space and the music kind of does the same thing it directly relates the grit of particular elements of this world to what we haven't really talked about the emotional content this really big mythic sweep of things the deepest drives that the genre is somehow getting at which uh, i'm not sure i can put into words I and mean, can you like in this uh, this face-off, this shootout scene that we were just watching here at the end. This is totally bizarre. I mean, the three of them step into these positions in a circle. It's like a big ceremony they're doing. <laughs> it's not clear why they're doing it or how they know what to do. Well. And the music is trying to put it all together, and it clearly works. So uh, what does it mean to you? Uh, <laughs> this situation, a three-way shootout, is sometimes called a Mexican standoff. I'm not sure exactly why. There's actually like a bunch of interesting game theory about it. This is not music about game theory, though. No, this is not. This is music about the swirling of the allegiances throughout the whole movie. The mixing and matching of what toy you're holding in each hand <laughs> and holding next to each other and making, okay, now it's these two guys, and now it's these two guys. That has been happening in the whole movie. Now they're circling around this circle, and they're looking out the sides of their eyes. Which guy should I shoot? Which guy is going to shoot me? Is he going to shoot that guy? Does he really like me better than him? Does he think that he can shoot faster than him? It's just all contained in just we're whirling around. It's gun, holster, hand. Face, eyes, holster, eyes. I mean, they're such great eyes. Man, every time it cuts back to Lee Van Cleef's eyes, I'm like, what great eyes. Yeah. Leonie said that they burn holes through the screen. Yeah, it's true. But is that what you hear in this music, in this kind of mariachi high, high trumpet stuff? You hear the culmination of all of the allegiances and betrayals? Yeah, I hear the culmination of all the badassery. <laughs> You know, it's a new tune. It's not a tune we've heard elsewhere in the movie, but it somehow feels like it's built out of the same molecules. It's the same family of chord changes. It's kind of using the same intervals, but rearranged. It feels just like it's giving you the feeling of culmination. Oh, definitely culmination. Culmination, and it does it so well, so strongly, so evocatively, so convincingly, that you are convinced that this is what the whole movie has been about. And you kind of forget that they made you sit through a whole lot of Civil War stuff that is not about this. To me, it didn't feel like the culmination of character or plot events. It felt like the culmination of a dream. Like I said, it has this ceremonial aspect to the way it's set up. I mean, there's always been a bit of a ceremony to a shootout. You know, they retreat into this triangular formation where they can all have this relationship cascading between them. John, remember when we were talking about Robin Hood and you said, you know why you love sword fighting? You love it because it's the only weapon that's both offense and defense. Yeah, yeah. You didn't realize that a gun can shoot a gun out of another guy's hand. A gun can open a door. A gun can break a rope. 
you didn't realize all the things that you can do with a gun. In fact, a gun can do anything, as seen in these movies. <laughs> Fair point. A gun can take off someone's hat. Taking off someone's hat is... Classic thing that a gun can do. Sure, that's like a long-distance slap in the face. Yeah, there's a whole sequence in uh, For a Few Dollars More where they're making each other's hats dance around on the street. It goes on for a long time. Yeah, that's when Lee Van Cleef is a good guy, and he winds up being the better marksman in that movie. After having watched that, and then watching the beginning of this one, Lee Van Cleef walks into this guy's house and sits down and does some of the most evil eating you've ever seen in a movie <laughs> at this guy. Right. I love the way he evil eats off that yep. spoon. And then he greedos him. He totally <laughs> pulls a greedo on him. And I was watching this. I did not realize that he was supposed to be bad yet because that's just how these movies are. They're just killing everyone all the time. When he shot the guy in the face through the pillow, then I knew he was bad. Well, but that's when they put the words the bad on the screen as well. I knew it one second before that. (laughs) Okay, so since you mentioned for a few dollars more... It seems clear that those movies, like we were saying, were precursors to this, that in one way or another had been building up to this. What about the music to those movies? I think we got to mention that. So I played a little bit of the original Fistful of Dollars theme there because I was talking about how it came directly out of that pop arrangement. In each of these prior movies, there is a precursor to the animal motif, the call of the wild, which in this movie is... In the first movie, it's this... It's a pan flute. Yeah, it's like the Papageno flute. It's like <laughs> sure. a traditional sound for a person who's close to nature. And you hear this when Clint Eastwood is being cryptic and reserved and powerful because of it. I don't think it's nice you laughing. Yeah, it's the idea that these guys get an auditory button just to, like, mark that they're on the screen and to say, this is the guy. But didn't you think that was because he is, in some sense, a creature? He's like an eagle. He's some kind of, Hmm. you know... Perhaps. It's definitely setting him apart from the rest of the people in this movie who don't get a little trademark. From the experience. No, thanks. I'll be moving on. Yeah, he came out of the wilderness this way. These guys, they're all too human, the warring factions in Fistful of Dollars. But this guy, he's... I didn't hear it that way, but I'll buy it. I think it's valid. But I think that doesn't take away from... Also, it's just, there he is. It's that guy. He's doing a thing. He's got a plan. He's awesomely stepping his spurs into frame or squinting while he lights his little cigar. It's just the guyness of this guy. It's a marker for that. And then in For a Few Dollars More, there's also a similar thing, a similar musical button that just means, here's the guy. He's the protagonist. You know, he has agency. It's just like a marker of the agency of the guy. I thought it was a marker of his prowess, his panther-like... Prowess. I'll take prowess, sure. You know, these things are all, to some degree, derived from samurai movies. Have we mentioned that Fistful of Dollars was... A very, very close remake of Yojimbo by Kurosawa. Sure. In those movies, isn't there often a kind of, you know, the samurai, if they have the true samurai spirit, they are in touch with nature somehow. Something is speaking through them, and that's why they're so fast with the blade. 
All this stuff also with the waiting, 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 and then shooting each other suddenly, which takes up a lot of the time in these Leone <laughs> movies. I think that's in a Kurosawa movie. I think it's in Sanjuro or one of those samurai movies. <laughs> anyway, Leone does it in these movies whenever he gets a chance. A lot of silence and then violence. Extreme violence. Also extreme silence. It's true. But there are definitely sequences in both of those movies, the prior two movies, where Morricone digs into the pause, the pre-violence, mm-hmm. where Morricone writes a whole aria. Sure. The showpiece in For a Few Dollars More is this scene in the church where the bad, 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 bad guy in the movie kills the guy who sent him to prison in the first place, kills his whole family, and they just look at each other for a long time, and there's an organ, and right. they're singing, and- All of the forces of drama are lined up to pay their respects to this moment where these two guys are looking at each other. Let's also take a look at another moment in For a Few Dollars More where two guys are looking at each other, and this time it's the climactic showdown shootout between Lee Van Cleef and that bad, bad, bad guy you were mentioning. He's bad. Now we start. This shootout cue, you know, I heard this after knowing the good, the bad, and the ugly my whole life, so it was impossible for me to not hear this as essentially a study for what he was going to write for the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, like you find a charcoal sketch of a famous painting. (laughs) This feels like a warm-up effort to the showdown at the end of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, well, because I wasn't coming to it with the good, the bad, and the ugly entire soundtrack burned into my brain, I just heard this all as developing this territory yeah. and this palette and this sound world. I think it needs to be understood as a whole genre of music, that kind of combination of surf rock and mariachi and Western movie scores and this Italianate Morricone high dramatic... Uh, arias. Arias, yeah. yeah. The wordless singer. What's her name? Edda Delorso. Yeah, it's this soprano who was one of his favorite musical instruments, as it were, the voice of this one soprano, and she winds up singing a descant high line over the ecstasy of the gold, which we haven't talked about yet, but which is absolutely one of the big, big takeaways and prizes in this movie and in this score. Sure. I had seen it in compilations of great movie sequences, great movie music, and I had always thought, well, I don't entirely understand what the significance of this is, but I can hear that it has great significance, and someday I'll see the movie and understand. <laughs> and having watched the movie, I understand that I did understand everything there was to understand. It's just what it looks like. It's just there for you to be swept up in, right? Or can you analyze the scene and tell me what it's expressing? I mean, I can tell you what's happening. It's uh, (laughs) the whole movie long. The gimmick of the movie is that there's a treasure, a buried treasure. Lee Van Cleef is looking for the guy who knows where it is. And 
Tuco and Blondie just happen to come across him as he's dying. And with his dying breaths, he tells that it is buried in some cemetery, the name of the cemetery, and he tells to Tuco. And then Tuco goes away and he tells the name of the grave under which it is buried to Clint Eastwood. So the two halves of the secret that are necessary to find the treasure are possessed by the two different guys. And that has been the propulsive force behind their uneasy alliance, blah, blah, blah. So finally, they tell each other their halves of the secrets right before they get there. And Tuco gets there first. And so he's running around the cemetery looking for the name on the grave that he has been told is where the gold is buried. So what we're watching is Eli Wallach is running around this cemetery, which is not a real cemetery. It was a set built in the mountainside in Spain. But it is arranged in an unlikely fashion for a cemetery where the gravestones are making these concentric circles around a circular shootout court in the middle. Right. Yeah, so he's running around the circles of these gravestones. And we cut between shots of Eli Wallach running, and they're taken from different distances. So you see the gravestones rushing past him with different amounts of parallax. And then it cuts to like his view with just the blur of the stones, stones, stones going past the screen, blurring and rushing past. And it just has the sense of spinning. Yes, it's like a big merry-go-round kind of sensation. It's a kaleidoscope. Yeah. And he is kaleidoscoping himself around it, trying to find the needle in the haystack, the one grave with the name on it which means that's where the treasure is and he gets more and more anxious and he starts running faster and faster yeah so what was what was the question what does this mean he's looking for i mean it has one of the all-time greatest musical supports this effect that you're talking about that when he gets to the graveyard he runs around looking for the grave yeah In fact, this was so central to the movie and to the artistic conception that this music was written before the movie was shot. Then it was shot with the music in mind, edited to the music, something that we've said before, very rare in film production. This is Mm -hmm. because Leone and Morricone, they were so invested in this combined effect of film and music that they wanted to prioritize the musical impact of this sequence. Yeah, my question is, uh, what were they going for? Can you put into any words why this is so intense and so huge and so mythic? epic because it's the ecstasy of the gold (laughs) but what does that ecstasy mean is it revealing something about the meaning of tuco's life or the meaning of everyone's life or no i don't think it is and i think that's why it's powerful i think it's the pure feeling of searching and being at the end of a long trek and quest to find something And then being close to the end where you can see the end and you have to make one last effort to find a thing. It's elevating that idea of being at the end of a quest to operatic proportions. And I think that's it. And I think that's all we need. To me, it gets at the dreamlike quality of all of this. Like, what is the meaning of a dream? The dreamer is not always the one who is able to say. Some Dr. Freud has to come in and <laughs> analyze why you were so, so moved right. by some particular thing. You know, when you describe a dream, I like, I was in this place, and like, I can't tell you why, but it was so important that I was there, and I was searching for this thing, and 
I wasn't sure I was ever going to find it, but I had to find it. You're not really talking about the plot of your dream. You're talking about some deeper thing that's trying to find uh, form in that plot. So yeah, so this music is the feeling of urgency in that dream that is independent of (laughs) the actual thing. Yeah, that's what it was to me. When we talk about underlying myth... This is pure underlying myth. Yes, right. There's no overlying myth. I'll grant you that. (laughs) Yeah. I'll totally grant you that, but... But it's just so compelling and so beautiful that I don't care. And that I'm willing to go along and feel that underlying myth, feel that sense of questing and having the dream sense that, boy, this is the most important thing just being injected into my veins. I mean, the wordless voice is such a kind of like sound of the soul, right? It's something very deep is trying to speak there. The whole progression of elements that get layered in here, you know, they're all the kind of the grab bag of stuff that we've heard the whole movie long. The- yeah, the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. We hear that a bunch of times earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we hear that figure for the first time when Tuco does in fact make his way out of the desert where Clint Eastwood leaves him towards the beginning of the movie as he's crossing this rope bridge into a town on the edge of the desert. That gets introduced sort of for him, for his character, stumbling towards something. Well, it's also when Clint's in the desert you hear it. That's true. Which is a really great cue, by the way. I want to listen to a little of this. Uh, you know, we've done some stumbling through the desert music. We uh-huh. talked about Lawrence of Arabia. We talked about Ben-Hur. Star Wars, too, I guess. I just thought, this is some great desert music. This is such great desert music. I wondered if the ascending kind of diminished arpeggios that he's building up here... Kind of the same as, you know, the second half of the Lawrence of Arabia. If that is a very small nod to Lawrence of Arabia, because there's some shots in this sequence that definitely seem to be inspired by Lawrence of Arabia in terms of people walking across the crests of sand dunes, that sort of thing. You know, I heard someone, some collaborator, saying they thought that Leonia always wanted to be David Lean and that, you know, in his own mind, that's the kind of movie he was making. But yeah, I do think that there is a possible overlap there. I was just struck that this cue, I mean, this is one of the most traditionally orchestrated cues, right? It's got an actual horn section. Right, and it's got actual orchestral uh, wind instruments, oboes and bassoons and stuff. Yeah, it feels like it starts to take in a more traditional, but also a very effective sense of dangerous and ominous landscape. favorite things about this cue though is the section right before that when Tuco is kind of explaining the curse that he's putting on Clint Eastwood when he's like yeah we're just gonna walk out in the desert and you're probably gonna die out there here we go 100 miles that's a nice walk uh, what was it you told me the last time uh, if you save your breath I feel a man like you could manage it There's this wonderful shifting ambiguous harmonies with this piano kind of wandering around, which I thought was such a lovely move toward actual character. There's not a lot of psychology in this music. There's not a lot of characterization beyond their badassery and the forces they're up against. But here, I thought it gave a real nice mixture to who Tuco is and what's kind of going on inside him.
I felt the benefits of that little moment throughout the rest of the movie. That like, oh yeah, this is the guy who got that kind of crawling, you know, sometimes major, sometimes minor figure. Um, and then let's also talk about what happens at the very end of the desert scene, right before he kills him. I'm so blundy. It's goodbye. Right before Tuco puts Blondie out of his misery, which he doesn't do. Yes, because he's interrupted by a ghost carriage, a stagecoach in which all of the human passengers have been killed and the horses are running wild. It's being dragged through the desert and it sort of miraculously hoves into view sort of deus ex machina saving Clint Eastwood's life there because Tuco gets distracted by it. And sure enough, that's where he finds the guy who knows where the treasure is who is not quite yet dead but just alive enough to do what I said earlier. Right. It's the same plot as uh, it's a Mad, 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 Mad world. That's exactly right. This is the Mad, 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 Mad world moment. It's the same movie. It's basically the same It's movie. almost exactly the same movie. Well, I just wanted to bring that up because it's the same music as what you referred to when we were talking about the mission. Right. These overlapping trumpets. Yeah, so the music that we're hearing here, we should spell out, is a reprise of music that we have heard previously in the movie. We first hear it when Lee Van Cleef is on the trail of this guy, and he follows a lead to a fort where the rebel army of the Civil War is camped out, and they've been routed and are kind of lolling around this fort feeling sorry for themselves. And as Lee Van Cleef walks in, this is the introduction of the Civil War material of the music... this lovely trumpet theme which we hear played straight through first and then when the melody comes around again this is for a really nice shot where the camera pans slowly across the whole vista of the fort as he's looking across it and now as he's looking at these kind of ramshackle cannons and fort structures he's kind of imagining the battle that all of this suggests and we're hearing little suggestions of it in these bugle calls that are layered on top of the melody we just heard collage-like. Yeah, to me it suggests like the voices of the dead, the echoes of the horrors of battle that run through everything. You know, you can't escape it just by going, being somewhere safe with you forever. And the world of the living and the world of the dead are close communion in places like this, something like that. Yeah. Which is essentially what's said when it comes back to be this ghost carriage. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's really evocative in that way because now we hear this music again. And I think now the element of the high soprano is added to it for this reprise in the desert with the stagecoach. And that combined, yeah, exactly like you're saying, with these collaging trumpets to suggest the specter of death. It makes it feel like it's some kind of, you know, mythic folk story about the carriage of death itself is somehow riding through the scene. Yeah, it's shot that way too. Right. It's like a movie about signs and omens and visions and this pivotal moment in the plot is essentially that one image gets interrupted by another, a different vision. And then so to jump back to, I think, (laughs) 
I think this last couple cues that we've been talking about have sort of been tangents out of when we were talking about the ecstasy of the gold. And I just wanted to say there that sure enough, he takes these same elements and kind of adds them up in new ways, but it's similarly a conglomeration of all these unusual instruments. We hear that high soprano singing, we hear the trumpet, we hear the Fender Stratocaster and the tubular bells with this interesting rhythmic pattern playing against the rest of the rhythm. In the background. I'm not sure I can tell you exactly what it means. I just know that I love it. It just sounds like what it is. And it is what it sounds like. And boy, does it sound like that. I saw Morricone say something about that he uses basic, familiar harmonic language, Mm -hmm. uses simple chord changes. He wants to use chord changes that everyone knows and everyone already has deep relationships to. Uh, That's what harmony is about for him. And he does that with real conviction. He pushes all of the accumulated associated feeling of some very basic chord changes. The one that seems to me kind of to define this movie is going from the one in minor to the major four Mm -hmm, in minor. mm -hmm. That's such a basic chord change, and yet it has all this depth that it can suggest, and he really milks it all. That's the change on the second baum, right? Uh, The da is just the one chord, and then baum, baum, baum. Yeah, that chord. Going between this major chord and this minor chord that's actually the home base. It's both simple and very potent if you make the most of it, and he really makes the most of it here, and I feel like it sort of defines the whole movie. Oh, it does. I absolutely agree with that, and I feel like the relationship contained in that change, I think, informs a lot of the chord changes that he then winds up going through in The Ecstasy of the Gold and in the trio that follows it. I think it's sort of an exploration of that relationship. What is it about that relationship? It always has had a kind of charge to it, right? Yeah, well, it's the surprise major. So it's, you're kind of getting your cake and eating it, too. You have the badass quality of being a minor chord for a badass guy in a <laughs> Western movie. But, oh, here's a major chord that suggests forcefulness and goodness and nobility somehow but we get to have both the nobility feeling a surprise major chord without leaving the badass world of the minor chord i I mean that's very simplistic but there is something to that yeah yeah to me it doesn't always mean nobility though sometimes i mean no nobility is not exactly the right word Uh, yeah it's hard to put these things into words i wrote down that it feels a little like a raised eyebrow all right like there's minor there's the tonic chord is minor and you know what minor means and then that major for the raised scale degree is a little like might be a little more than what you thought it was. It might be a little. You know, bit- I'm sure something that Morricone himself was very well familiar with the well-known phenomenon of the surprise major note in classical music is something called the Picardy third, which is the way a lot of Bach compositions end, where you know we hear a long fugue in minor and it's totally minor, 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 minor the whole time. Except for the very last note, suddenly it resolves 
to a major version of the same chord. You know, it's C major instead of C minor at the end. And I think this had a religious connotation. Yeah, yeah. It still sounds that way to me. Sure. I, I mean, I think it was designed to be an allegory for uh, the grace of God bringing... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Triumphs in the end. Always. Triumphs in the end. I mean, the thing about a Picardy Third is that it gets me every time. <laughs> it's so powerful... When you step out of the shadow of minor, 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 oh, but there's major at the end, like it really has a very eye opening, you take a new breath when you hear it kind of feel to it. So, what's different between that and what he's doing in this stuff? The thing about the Picardy Third is that it replaces the chord that you already have in your head. So, there's a sense of something being converted. The thing about this is that you have an intuition of That's what it. is elsewhere in the scale, and it turns out to be wrong. It's more than you thought. It's higher than you thought. Yeah, that's right. It's the thing that it is replacing has not been made explicit yet. It's something that you have an intuition for. Exactly. It's Well, if this is the one chord and it's minor, fine. I, I assume, assume the four will sound like the this. The four chord is also a minor chord like this. Right, right. To have that the heavens are opening up and you open your eyes wide feeling about something that has not been made explicit to you, but you're having your intuition replaced... I don't know. Maybe that's why it gets its power. You know what other movie we've talked about that is deeply based on that change? Um. Oh, of course, of course, yes. I mean, I'm sure it's in other ones, but that's another movie where it defines the space of the movie. It's American Beauty, by the way. It's the same change. Yeah. And it's a powerful enough relationship that in that score, he does nothing but that for minutes at a time. Yeah. It maintains that sense of a kind of raised eyebrow the whole time, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like, here's what's going on, but there may be more. Don't be too sure that you've seen the whole thing. It might expand beyond your expectations. Something like that. Something like that. You know, I think a lot of what is great about this movie is just its ability to say to you, yes, something like that. Something like a badass... Boy, we're saying badass a lot in this episode. Well, yeah, so I wanted to ask you about badass. Like, isn't this thing that we're dancing around kind of somewhat what the difference between bad and badass is? That the bad guy is just a minor chord. But badass is like, you might want to... Maybe you want to be this way. I don't know. Not going to say outright that you want to emulate this. But think about it. Think about how maybe you would like to kill some people too. I'm not sure exactly. But I was struck that these movies, which are really at the origin of the modern sense of badass, they don't sell you how gritty these guys are with gritty music they sell it to you with this sense of nature and this sense of whatever we can't put it into words the eyebrow with a major fourth and just a satisfying galloping what they do not do is play like you know there's no distortion guitar modern masculine uh, hero music is so on the nose and this somehow goes around the side and is much more powerful We should not end without talking about the song and the lullaby scene. (laughs) That's exactly right. We've managed to not really talk about what is a big thrust of the music in this movie, which is all the Civil War material. We hinted at some of the Civil War material for the fort and the carriage. Yeah, you talked about that kind of somber thoughts of the dead Civil War music that we've covered, but there are a couple other elements. There's a couple others, and I think it is telling that we got this far into the episode without talking about it, because like I said before, this is the part of the movie where I felt like, yeah, yeah, let's go back to watching what this movie really is. 
The Civil War music is very lovely music, but I think it has a less productive relationship with the picture. So there's a Civil War sort of marching tune, right? Yeah, this is what gets introduced when they first turn up at this prisoner of war camp, and the prisoners are indeed being made to march. And then it comes back in a more thoughtful version. Right, there's a humming version of it. And then the other piece of material is the song. There's a song. Yeah, there's a song that is actually, you see, being performed in the movie. It's being performed by the prisoners in the prisoner of war camp. These are musicians who have been taken prisoner, apparently. Some of them seemingly quite good musicians, like the guy who we're made to think is playing the fiddle. Uh, you know, nice violining there he does. Yeah, but his mustache isn't so great, so... <laughs> Anyway, the gag here is that these prisoners are being forced by the guards to play this sad song. Well, it's sweet. It's lullaby like, don't you think? Yeah, that's true. Well, it's melancholy. It's some kind of uh, homesickness song, I think. I had to look up what the lyrics were because the Italians singing these English words are not making clear what they are. Yeah, I don't think they bear paying too much attention to. It's about the lot of a soldier. That's right. A Civil War soldier, which is, like I keep saying, not really what this movie is about. (laughs) Anyway, so these prisoners are being made to play and sing this song to cover up the sound of Lee Van Cleef interrogating and torturing Tuco. And we're given to understand that this is their M.O., that Lee Van Cleef's muscle guy beats up whoever they're shaking down for as long as this song goes. So do you think this is the first, I don't know, I'm not enough of a cinephile to say confidently, but is this possibly the first sweet music while something very violent happens in movies? Hmm. It felt so modern while I was watching Yeah, it's true. I mean, while I was watching the whole movie, I was thinking, wow, I don't think Quentin Tarantino would know how to breathe if he hadn't seen this movie. (laughs) Yeah, Tarantino cites this as his favorite movie often. No kidding. (laughs) Yeah, and I think a lot of Tarantino's movies' main goal is to, like, demonstrate that he's seen this movie. So this thing with the, you know, like, really brutal violence for the year. This is absolutely a page in the Tarantino songbook that he took from here. I agree. Yeah, you play something incongruously non-violent doesn't have the threat in it and then something terrible is happening right Tarantino is so obsessed with this movie that he shanghaied Morricone into scoring his movie The Hateful Eight which I haven't seen Morricone won the Oscar for that score I don't dislike Tarantino. I admire certain things about him, but I also like to roll my eyes at him sometimes, so I was pleased to see that Morricone had some unflattering things to say about his relationship with Tarantino. (laughs) What did he say? He said that, uh, essentially what I'm saying, that this guy is just dealing in references and he's not making his own art and he's very full of himself for that reason. Well, I also thought about how this movie is, you know, American westerns got filtered through this European mind and came out as a slightly different thing. And then this got filtered through Quentin Tarantino and came out as a different thing. Because certainly Tarantino movies are not just this. No, he's also seen some kung fu movies. Okay, enough about Tarantino. 
just in terms of violence and sweetness, yeah. that effect, it has a strong effect on me. I don't love it, <laughs> in part because the effect is so strong. The lullaby sweetness of this music has a soothing effect. You can't resist the effects of music. So you listen to lullaby-like music, and it softens up your belly, and then that maximizes how harsh the violence you have yeah. to watch is. And it seems like that is the intention when directors do this. It's like, I don't want you to be able to just roll your eyes and be like, yeah, yeah, he's pushing his thumbs into the guy's eyeballs. I've seen it before. They want you to feel uncomfortable, and the way to make you uncomfortable is to make you soft, is to be yeah. feeding you this kind of childlike association at the same time so that you can't put up your armor. And that kind of pisses me off sometimes. I'm like, you couldn't just show me the scene. You had to make it actually hurt by playing this sweet music. But in this case, it came as a surprise. I didn't know that this movie was going to have that move in its arsenal. It was especially a surprise because this is not the first time that we've heard this material. We hear the instrumental version of this song earlier in the movie when Tuco and Blondie show up at a mission. It's the same tune, but without the singing. But we hear this material again and again, and I think it's always tracked in. I don't think it has been written originally into the score for any spot but this, but yet it gets put up against these other moments. You can hear where it's kind of awkwardly cut in and out of. It fades in and fades out unceremoniously, which is again why I say that this material didn't breathe with the movie the way the rest of it did. Yeah, I think I'm with you there, but I also thought that the sketching of what the Civil War means in this movie is so sketchy and so vague yeah. that the music ends up having a very important role in placing you anywhere in relationship to it. And I thought whatever emotion is in this tune and in that other tune become the meaning of the Civil War stuff. And since it is pretty and it does have that kind of concentrated effect that Morricone tends to put into his arrangements... Yeah, it's not the first track on the album that I felt invested in, but I, I think if you spend enough time there, it might seep into you. I mean, it's definitely seeped into me with all the times I've listened to this album, and it's a very pretty tune. Yeah, it is. And it's like in a trance. It's like a song someone would make up in a dream. It is trance-like. And you're right that it is evocative of something about war, and it is getting you through those sequences, which I just wish that there was less of them to be gotten through. But let's maybe end on, I just wanted to make a quick nod to the sequence that closes the movie after the shootout. Uh, I won't say who gets shot, but Tuco and Blondie are the ones who are left. (laughs) (laughs) They've found the treasure. The final betrayal, Clint Eastwood makes Tuco get up into the hangman's noose, which was their shtick from the beginning of the movie. Blondie! Sorry, Tuco. And Clint Eastwood rides off. I just thought it was so exactly the right, simple choice to have just this rhythmic beat going and nothing else. It's 
the high noon thing, right? It's just like the beaten high noon. Yeah, I think it is. I think it must be made with some sort of early synthesizer instrument the way that same clip-cloppy rhythm is in the high noon song. It sounds like that. Or a trick with the guitar and the amp like you were speculating earlier. Right. It's it's one of those two things. It's some... Some electronic effect. Yes. You know, in a way, I feel like this is the most perspicacious scoring that he does in the movie in terms of deciding exactly how much information he is going to give you, which is very little. It's just a haze around the tension in the air. It's like he's throwing smoke at the tension that's hanging in the air so you can see the outline of it. I don't know. Maybe I'm making too much of it. but No, that's a pretty image, and absolutely. It's this long shot where you see the horse go from the foreground to the very far distance in the same shot. And yeah, that is somehow tied directly into this thing. Yeah, it just makes you feel like something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. And the fact that it comes at the end of this whole twisty-turny, not really a plot between these two guys, and you don't know exactly what's the right thing, what you want to happen. And then I think the actual thing that does happen is like exactly the right thing to happen. It seems like the precise just dessert. You know, it's like the tough but fair ending. It's just so satisfying to me. And then as though to underscore what you were saying about how this ah figure is like the animalistic call. Yeah. The final gesture of the movie, Tuco, having been humiliated and put through the ringer this way, runs after Clint Eastwood and yells this curse at him. You're just a dirty son of a Just a dirty son of a Yeah, I just love it. This is the thing that, you know, when I was a kid, I just felt like, oh, you can be cool like this? Yeah, I mean, so this is full circle. And so again, like, I don't totally get Westerns. I'm just <laughs> not made of this stuff. Because genre is, at some level, genre is about satisfying deep expectations that you have. And to me, the stuff that happened at the end was like, it seemed, if not arbitrary, at least it didn't resonate the way it's supposed to. And I think of that as very personal and subjective. Yeah, it's very subjective. And again, I don't really advance a coherent defense of it. I mean, do you like Westerns? If someone was like, we're going to go see a Western, would you be like, yeah, let's see that? I do like Westerns. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Does it have to do with a personal relationship to, I don't know what, masculine? or violence or responsibility or society or I don't know what whatever the deep issues that westerns get at I don't quite (laughs) align with them whereas like if you're like we're gonna go see a movie about a detective who works alone and the woman comes into his office I'd be like yeah I got to see that. I got to find out what happens to that guy. I get why it goes deep. I mean, that guy's a cowboy too, right? And yet somehow the thing, the whole desert and hats, <laughs> I don't need to see those. Or if you told me that there's going to be a, this house might be haunted, but they have to go there anyway. Yeah. Let's go find out what's in that haunted house. Oh, I'm not going to haunted house. See? All right. We're different types. Yeah. And I think it's a little bit accentuated in this movie, which is not just a Western, but it's a Europeanized Western. And in my extremely American way, it was like, yeah, this is looking through eyes other than mine at the world. So some of this stuff, I was just there for the spectacle and the, the show, the sounds and the sights. But... I'm glad that for you it feels like the perfect, perfect ending. It does. Like I said, this movie kind of felt like not quite as good a movie to me this time around as it had been living in my memory. 
but definitely the music was as good as I remembered it being. You know, I have complained in several previous episodes that long movies are too long for yeah. me. Yeah. And I was prepared to say, this is a slightly different beast. This is not in the manner of Spartacus or Ben-Hur, an overlong movie. This is actually a normal-length movie that takes forever because <laughs> every second lasts a minute. You know what? I disagree because I am super cool with the seconds that last a minute. I am super cool with having some random craggy face jump into the screen and just stay there for a minute at a time and then watch him walk with some other faces without knowing who they are or why and total silence and just the sounds of winds and tumbleweed and coyotes, mm-hmm. you know, and then all of the anticipation before people shoot at each other that you were talking about. I am cool with all of that. But yeah, just like you could have edited some scenes out of this movie for sure. Um, Okay, let's sum up. We've been talking for a while here. Oh, yeah. I don't know if I have a coherent closing statement that is outside of what I've already said. I've always loved this music. I think that the way that it lays out the space of the badass lone gunman makes it feel like whatever they're doing, which doesn't even matter what it is, it's still important and cool and elemental. Yeah. Yeah. I think this music just gives you the sense of, well, this has to be this way because these are just the elements that this world is made out of and I'm going to play around with them so you understand all of the ways that these elements work and just taking that in was eye-opening to me as a kid. The apotheosis of it in this movie, in those two successive cues at the end, the ecstasy of the gold and the trio, combined with the super iconic, etched into everybody's subconscious main motif of this movie, make it just an all-time score for me. Yeah. My closing statement is, whatever is in your sponge, music can squeeze that sponge and (laughs) make it drip out. And I can see that these images, these scenarios are a wetter sponge for some people (laughs) than for me. But nonetheless, I was well aware that this music was getting every last drop, was squeezing firmly and, you know, with complete (laughs) pressure, getting every drop of the mystery, the gut, whatever the underpinnings of all of this imagery are, it was pulling them out of it and handing them to you. And to the degree that I get it and can savor what it has to offer, it's all in that amazing main title music. It's so complete in itself. It has a whole myth completely bound up in the composition, Mm -hmm. in the sound and in the notes and the structure. Everything about it is such an astonishing achievement. I completely agree with what you said years ago, that really this should have been there instead of the mission. Great. It's just clearly got that status. I guess the reason the AFI didn't put it in there is because it's pretty clearly not an American movie in the A, and AFI stands for American. But the mission wasn't really an American movie either, so (laughs) I don't really know what they thought they were doing. Okay, well, I feel vindicated. Good. Okay, what is up next? I believe it's my turn with the bucket. Mm -hmm. You have the list, the form that the bucket takes on Earth. Do you have it open? (laughs) I do. All right, then uh, here's Edda singing you in. All right, all of these movies, all of these possible scores that we could talk about, they're swirling, swirling in front of my (laughs) eyes. I'm running past them in concentric circles. Which one will I pick? Which one will the bucket tell me is where the treasure is buried? Okay, I'm reaching my hand in, and what I came up with is... The Princess Bride, 1987, score by Mark Knopfler. 
Well, okay. Hey, look at that. This was a listener suggestion that got put into our bucket. So thanks very much for that. Yeah, and it's the score that, without it giving anything away, you and I have talked about before, <laughs> and I look forward to talking some more about it. Yeah, I mean, obviously I love this movie, right? Who doesn't love this movie? Don't you love of course. this movie, Andy? Love the movie. Love the movie. Let's talk about the score next time. I look forward. If you enjoy the show... Tell all your friends to listen to it. And if you enjoy talking to us, talk to us. Talk to us on Twitter, at ScoreSettlers, where you, like the lucky listener who suggested The Princess Bride, can put something into our bucket that we pull out of it. Or you can just tell us what you thought about this episode's movie and score, or other things. We really enjoy hearing from you there. And go ahead and write us a review while you're at it in your podcast app there. Those really help us out. And again, thank you very much to everybody who has already written us reviews. We really genuinely are very grateful. Yeah, we're glad people are listening. We'd probably be making it anyway, but uh, thanks for listening. It definitely helps. It helps. I got to tell you, Andy, (laughs) that they're listening. Yeah, of course it does. Hey, listeners, thanks for your help. Thanks for listening to another installment of The John, The Andy, and The Ugly. Yeah, I'll see you here next time. (laughs) 